obviously there needs to be uh, in Ireland a very uh, honest and um, open discussion about institutional uh, structure of a united Ireland. Also, a very important point of uh, defining uh, veto, uh, like in Bosnia-Herzegovina, for example, uh, courts, court or, or a Dayton Peace Agreement or even Constitutional Court did not define what does protection of uh, vital national interests mean which is uh, uh, regularly vetoed and uh, uh, basically the, puts the stop to a proper decision-making and uh, stymies uh, decision-making. Some changes in law take years because of this. Hello and welcome to this month's Aaron's podcast. I'm Rory Montgomery. In discussion of the Irish peace process and of the future of Ireland, Comparisons are drawn from time to time with you know, other countries, whether South Africa, um, Colombia, the Middle East, in, in terms of processes, whether Germany, in terms of, uh, of the reunification of a country. But the article we're focusing on today draws some very interesting parallels uh, between Ireland and Bosnia and Herzegovina. And I'm delighted uh, to be joined uh, by Dr. Taima Kapic. She's a postdoctoral researcher at the Institute for International Conflict Resolution and Reconstruction at Dublin City University. And also joining us to discuss her paper is Professor John Doyle, who's the director of that institute at DCU, also a member of the Aaron's Steering Committee and the editor of Irish Studies in International Affairs. So you're both very welcome. Um, Time, if I may, just very briefly, tell us about how you came to come to Ireland and, and what brought you to uh, work on this research. Uh, okay. First of all, thank you for uh, the invitation to take part in uh, this podcast series. And I'm also very happy to partake in the project, uh, Ireland's project, as a postdoctoral uh, researcher. I came to Ireland uh, in 1993. Uh, basically, uh, my uh, coming to Ireland was a result of, of the war in Bosnia-Herzegovina and uh, ethnic cleansing that uh, happened during uh, the war. My family was expelled from the city of uh, Mospar, where I lived since I was born until uh, October of uh, 1993. I uh, worked uh, at, uh, during the war. I worked in a humanitarian organization in Mostar, and one of the organizations that provided uh, aid to, to Mostar was the Irish uh, charity called Cradle. And they uh, basically helped me to get to Ireland. I worked uh, with Cradle, and I'm still a member of, of Cradle non, in a non-executive manner. I started, uh, I did uh, 25 years of uh, humanitarian and international development work. I uh, have a master's degree in uh, UCD in international development. I did uh, uh, mostly, uh, my thesis was on uh, women's and gender equality and what happened to women during the war. And uh, the reason why I took up the PhD was because I wanted to also explore what happened to women who stayed in Bosnia-Herzegovina, for, who for whatever reason couldn't leave the country. And my thesis looked at the Dayton Peace Agreement uh, as a consociational peace agreement and its impact on uh, political representation of women in Bosnia-Herzegovina. Well, thank you very much indeed. So you speak, obviously, with great personal knowledge as well as academic authority. Now, it has to be said, of course, that we're recording this uh, podcast on the the day of, of Russia's um, invasion of, of, of Ukraine, um, uh, 
terrible reminder of what war and conflict can can do, uh, even on the continent of of Europe, and of course, as you as you indicated, uh, the the wars in the Balkans um, in the nineteen nineties were were bloody um, and had far reaching consequences. Now, there's a great deal, obviously, which one could say about the specific situation uh, in Bosnia Herzegovina, uh, and we don't have time, obviously, for all of that today, and we want to move on to the very interesting parallels you, you draw uh, between it and, and Ireland. But maybe just for the information of our listeners, um, could you say in very brief terms, what happened in Bosnia-Herzegovina uh, during the, the war? War in Bosnia-Herzegovina lasted for three and a half years. It started in uh, April of 92 and ended with the Dayton Peace Agreement in 95, in December of uh, 1995, after months of negotiations in, uh, in Dayton in the USA. I must say that this is not the only uh, uh, peace agreement that was uh, imposed uh, uh, in Bosnia-Herzegovina uh, after uh, at the end of the war, because preceding the Dayton Peace Agreement, a Washington Peace Agreement was uh, uh, signed between uh, uh, warring uh, parties of uh, Bosnia and Croats. Because, you know, to say in a very plain language, the war uh, uh, in the beginning has started serves against everyone. But then the partners, Croats and Bosniaks, also uh, entered or or um, descended to into uh, armed conflict uh, in '93. So you were left with a situation then, obviously, where, to put it mildly, um, relations between the the different groups were extraordinarily tense and and no doubt bitter as as well. And and it was this context that the. Uh, negotiators of the peace agreement had to had to operate. Um, in fact, there's an interesting account from the American point of view uh, in the recent biography of Richard Holbrook, who was the principal American negotiator at, at that time. But um, maybe you could just tell us, you know, after these three and a half years of war, then what were the main provisions of the Dayton Peace Agreement? Basically, uh, the, there are there are two aspects to this. This is why I mentioned the uh, Washington Peace Agreement. So Dayton Peace Agreement basically divided the country uh, into two uh, entities. One is uh, um, called Republika Srpska, which I can refer to Republika Srpska or RS uh, as well, if that's okay. And the other one is the Federation of uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina. Uh, Federation of Bosnia-Herzegovina is creation uh, of the Washington Peace Agreement. The Federation of Bosnia-Herzegovina was uh, basically a result of the Washington Peace Agreement and the peace between Bosniak and Croats. Considering that this uh, area of the country was extremely mixed, I mean, the whole country was mixed. Let's make sure uh, to say this: this whole country was mixed. But Republika Srpska, at the end of the war, because of the massive ethnic cleansing, came out of the war completely uh, ethnically homogeneous. Ninety uh, before before the war in this area, uh, there were uh, uh, eight hundred thousand uh, of uh, non-Serbs living there. After the war, there was 80,000. I mean, today, together with the returnees, there, is, there are only 80,000 of non-Serbs. So there's a, a 89%, I think it's a homogenous, Republika Srpska. And it's also, because it's homogenous, it's also very centralized. 
So Republika Srpska is divided only on, uh, it has a, a, a parliament or a, a assembly and the local councils. While federation, because uh, it, it, it was uh, described as a war within the war, at the end of this war, after Washington uh, peace agreement, federation was further divided into 10 cantons, which are uh, basically uh, form, formed around the majority of a particular ethnicity. So f- uh, of these 10 cantons, five of them have majority of the Bosniaks, which before were called Muslims. The nation was called Muslims, but that's maybe too complicated and maybe for a different uh, podcast subject. So uh, uh, majority of them uh, in the five cantons are Bosniaks. In three cantons, our majority are Croats, while two cantons are uh, mixed. Cantons, and these are basically two cantons where the the most of the armed conflict conflict between Bosniak and Croats went on, and one of them is a uh, Herzegovina Neretva canton with the uh, its capital uh, Mostar. It's the biggest city basically that the Croats uh, wanted to have control over, which is my hometown. And so, I mean, just to to recap, uh, you you then have um, uh, essentially. At least three th- three levels. You have the the state of of Bosnia mm-hmm. Herzegovina. You then you have the two entities, the Republika Srpska on the one hand, and the Federation um, of Bosnia Herzegovina, and then you have the cantons in the latter. Um, so uh, a very complicated um, system. And, and just in fact, you might remind us what's the population of Bosnia Herzegovina? Well, uh, before the war, it was uh, four million. Uh, I mean, official results now still say around three and a half million, but uh, unofficial results say that uh, just over two, maybe two and a half million uh, uh, people live there. Yes, and I mean, uh, your your article, I mean, does suggest that. You know, it, it in very many ways, the the functioning of these institutions um, has been extremely inefficient, not to say uh, dysfunctional. I mean, is that a fair um, a, f- a fair summary? Yes, uh, it's extremely uh, the structure imposed. I just want to also say about the uh, Dayton Peace Agreement is described as a, a corporate uh, type of peace agreement which means that uh, uh, people didn't have say, like in some liberal types of uh, uh, consociational peace agreement, power-sharing peace agreement, like Good Friday Agreement, for example, uh, people did uh, decide uh, about uh, about this uh, beforehand. Dayton Peace Agreement uh, is extremely uh, strict and stringent form of um, corporate uh, power-sharing peace agreement. This was It was imposed... Uh, on warring parties by uh, international community in order to stop the war. And this was the main uh, uh, main aim, which now 26 years later, we could say, yes, this aim, uh, you know, is a success because we, uh, the war, the peace uh, has uh, been uh, maintained. But that was not the only aim. Uh, the aim of any peace agreement should also be to uh, reintegrate uh, communities uh, uh, again and obviously uh, make some kind of uh, economic uh, and the political progress uh, within, you know, within this framework. 
I mean, uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina is uh, not only post-conflict society, but is also post-socialist society that also uh, bears their own, uh, its own consequences and its own kind of transitional um, attributes, uh, should I say. So basically, um, this has uh, the, the extremely uh, uh, complicated and cumbersome institutional structure has stifened uh, any, any possibility of economical or uh, political uh, development. Um, you know, if you have uh, such a small country and you have 13 ministries and, um, you know, uh, 136 ministers, that's uh, in itself, it's uh, uh, extremely economic, put the pressure on, uh, on, uh, on the state. You know, because you have to su- sustain this apparatus. Uh, if you think about that, uh, country is divided. Uh, uh, you have state level with all the, you know, parliament and the civil service. Then you have uh, the same again at the at the entities, two entities. But then you have ten times more again at the, each canton because each canton has uh, um, attributes of a mini state. They all have constitution, they all have parliament, they all have its own judiciary, uh, education system, health, and so on. But you're, so I, I infer from what you're saying that not only is the system incredibly complex, but it hasn't really succeeded uh, in, in, develop, in delivering economic and social progress and then the question of reconciliation um, within um, w- within the country as as well. I had the the experience of visiting Srebrenica um, on one occasion uh, on a visit uh, to to the country, and of course, it's a particularly t- chilling um, reminder of another breakdown in in relationships between communities and 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 the exercise of brutal power by by one. But it's but even you know that the 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 history of Srebrenica, the legacy of Srebrenica, is still contested. And is it fair to say that's one of the current challenges which uh, you face? So uh, um, uh, basically, the one of the consequences of a highly highly federalized uh, uh, state that is also sometimes uh, referred as uh, as as we mentioned before, with the different levels as an isometric uh, uh, federation. Has a consequence that uh, one one part of the country can uh, decide uh, something um, uh, on their own, and uh, the other half of the country doesn't have uh, any influence whatsoever. So, if you don't have a functioning state that would combine these two uh, levels, uh, that's where a uh, problem starts. So, I think uh, one of the one of the um, Ways maybe uh, that was put also uh, in place in uh, Dayton to overcome this is heavy presence of international community in uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina, which especially uh, through uh, office of the high representative. Basically, the last high representative before he left uh, his post, uh, Valentin Itzko, last year, uh, introduced a law uh, which uh, forbids uh, a genocide denial. I mean, the court in Hague has ruled that uh, uh, genocide took place in Srebrenica. In Republika Srpska, this is not accepted and uh, basically is um, contested. So after he made this ruling, the uh, uh, Serb uh, member of the presidency ordered all the parliament members and uh, uh, civil servants from Republika Srpska to uh, 
boycott state-level uh, institutions, which created this crisis. Thank you so much, um, Taima. That's a really, a really lucid and and clear uh, explanation of of the, the the roots of the the situation and and the the huge problems. So, m- moving on then to the comparisons with Ireland, or or more or I suppose more precisely, the the lessons which, as your article says, might be drawn from this for the possible functioning of a, of a united Ireland. And here I may turn to John. I mean, there are a number of, of obvious points of potential comparison, but perhaps we could start off with this question of, of federalism and perhaps a multiplication of, uh, of institutions and layers of government. Yeah, Rory, thanks. I mean, I think it's unlikely that a future uh, united Ireland would go the route of the extensive layers of governance that's been forced upon Bosnia-Herzegovina. But there's clearly a decision to be made, at the very least, as to whether the current devolved institutions in Northern Ireland would continue uh, inside the United Ireland. That's provided for in the Irish Constitution. There's been some discussion. Perhaps we might go back to a four provinces or even Dublin as a separate five province Ireland. Um, so it's a real live discussion. Some of this is the most important political institutional decision to be made, because lots of other things flow from that decision. And I think if you look to the lessons from the Dayton Accord, it's understandable in some ways that the negotiators just wanted to end the war. It was a terrible and brutal war. Terminus has been the worst example of many cases. And so a group of people in difficult negotiations or months in an Air Force base in Ohio just saying, well, let's just get the war stopped and we'll figure out the rest later. So I think the, the lesson that might be learned in the future constitutional discussion about United Ireland is whether this is the moment when a more integrative political system might be generated versus an argument would be made, well, just transitionally, it's easier. We'll just leave the devolved governments for a time and we'll come back to it in five years or 10 years. But I think the experience from multiple cases around the world is once there is a devolved entity inside the state, Almost never will such an entity vote to dissolve itself or to give up its potential veto on political power, however dysfunctional the system becomes. And, and the lesson from the Dayton Accords is everyone accepts the system is dysfunctional, but people have very different views as to how to solve that. The leadership of Republika Srpska want to partition the country again. That's probably the undeclared position of Croats, uh, declared by some, but not by the government of Croatia. Uh, and so they have no interest in solving the problem. And to move that to United Ireland uh, in a situation where there was a devolved uh, government instalment uh, doesn't have a veto over legislation uh, in those circumstances. Uh, if it deploys that veto, what's the mechanism uh, for resolving that problem? At the moment, when vetoes lead to the collapse of the executive, which has happened for almost half of its life since the Good Friday Agreement, the British government either steps in and passes legislation, as it has done on occasion, but more often than not, it's simply not wanted to get sucked into the local argument and has allowed decisions to remain untaken and unresolved for year after year, from the Irish language to legacy of the past issues. And the British government hasn't wanted to make those decisions. So, so for me, that's one of the strongest arguments that we need to really reflect on. I think a lot of people's assumptions is we would just keep storming, keep the parish executive. That seems the Good Friday Agreement approach. Uh, it, literally, that's probably what the Good Friday Agreement implies. It doesn't explicitly say it. Obviously, United Ireland could make 
whatever constitutional decisions it wishes in accordance with international norms and human laws and the other restrictions we would want to keep to. Um, but my argument would be that the international lessons of small states with federal structures are not great. In fact, it's hard to find an example of a two-unit federal system that works well. Uh, and in the aftermath of war, uh, that's not all. That's not always the case. Uh, and the other question I think that comes from uh, the Dayton Accords is in the case of Republic of Serbska, at least it's clear who that entity represents. It's an interesting point you make, John, because as you say, I think the assumption in many quarters has been rather unthinkingly um, that you know, the Northern Ireland institutions would continue. That would, of course, raise the, the, the question of whether there would be North-South institutions, which would seem strange. But I think the underlying assumption has always been, I suppose, that there would somehow be a unionist majority uh, in such an entity and that the unionists themselves would want to keep it. But of course, by definition, you know, the question would only arise if the union, if there had been a majority in within Northern Ireland in favour of United Ireland. So I suppose there's a very open question as to whether the unionists would actually regard their interests as being served in, in this particular way as opposed to other possible ways. I mean, that discussion is already lively with elections facing us in May. All recent opinion polls suggest that Sinn Féin will be the largest party, though tactical voting might change that between now and May. But if we assume those polls are accurate, and Michelle O'Neill is the designate First Minister, um, there's at least a very live question as to whether unionists in those circumstances will simply refuse to appoint a deputy First Minister and take part in the executive, because they wouldn't perceive the Northern Ireland executive as representing them in those circumstances. And given the demographic situation, um, given the emergence of a significant middle ground of others represented by the Alliance Party and Green Party, it's hard to see a future with all the limitations of future guessing where unions would ever again represent the majority of Northern Ireland. So therefore, a Northern Ireland entity inside Northern Ireland wouldn't represent them in the way a typical federal system where a local majority that's a national minority feels represented at the institutional level. That wouldn't be the case in Stormont in the United Ireland. And therefore, its purpose as a representative assembly and government doesn't seem clear at the very least. And I think unionists wouldn't feel represented by a government where the majority was nationalists and others. I think that's that's the reality. There isn't the same regional sense. They don't feel a regional sense of a need to be raw. It's to represent unionists themselves. Thank you, John. Yeah, Taima, just moving on, obviously the Good Friday Agreement is to a large extent um, or the internal arrangements within Northern Ireland uh, are, are premised on the idea that you have two blocks, uh, two identities or traditions, as the as the phraseology uh, of the revised nationalism of the eighties and nineties would 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 say. But of course, you know, individual citizens don't have to register themselves or aren't necessarily considered as being either. Um, although within the assembly, elected representatives have to declare themselves to be unionist or, or nationalist or or other. And of course, many will say that one of the, you know, a large weakness of the Good Friday Agreement institutions is precisely that there is no uh, provision made for, for for the others who are a growing third block uh, to be, you know, equally re- represented. But in, in Bosnia-Herzegovina, a different approach was taken. Isn't, isn't that right in terms of, you know, ident- defining people's identities? Um, yes, uh, in Bosnia-Herzegovina, uh, basically Dayton Peace Agreement or the way that different tenets of consociationalism work in, uh, in Bosnia-Herzegovina uh, when we talk about uh, equal representation, 
we are talking about representation of uh, or uh, participation of the three uh, main ethnic groups, which were basically um, three warring parties. And this in Dayton is described as a representation of the three constituent people in the constitution of Bosnia-Herzegovina, which is Dayton Peace Agreement. It's an article in the Dayton Peace Agreement. It's a constitution of the country. I mean, even thinking that is problematic that you have peace agreement as a constitution of a, of a, of a state, but uh, that that is reality in, in Bosnia-Herzegovina. Uh, basically, you have three constituent people, which are uh, Bosniak, uh, uh, Serbs, uh, and Croats. And then there is uh, uh, others, and others is everyone else. Others are uh, Jewish people and Roma population and all other minorities, including citizens who refuse to declare themselves as the members of any of, of these three ethnonational uh, groups. And how do you de- and how and when um, do you declare your identity as census? And and how regularly and how regularly do the census? <laughs> well, well, that's the that is the uh, uh, point. Also, uh, last uh, last census that was in 1991, and the peace agreement and the cantons were basically and uh, most uh, of the uh, political institutions were created on on uh, the results of the census from 1991, which was before the war. Uh, there was a census in 2013 which is contested by uh, Republika Srpska because uh, Republika Srpska does not uh, accept people who were expelled from Republika Srpska uh, to declare themselves uh, as residents of Republika Srpska. So basically they they are contesting this uh, and that's why these results, I mean, you know, they could be used in federation and uh, uh, state level, but uh, basically uh, in in forty nine percent of the territory of the country, uh, uh, census is not recognised. Yes, so so the balances are, if you like, almost frozen as they were in in nineteen ninety one thirty one years ago, and of course there's a similar phenomenon in in Lebanon as we as we know, mm. where there hasn't been a census for however long. But but John, I mean that obviously raises an interesting point because if the you know the Good Friday Agreement is you know in its internal institutions from Northern Ireland heavily consociational, uh, and there is this assumption um, that there is a nationalist group and a, a unionist group. But if you were talking in the United Ireland about protections for unionists and 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 for unionism, you know again how how would you define those entitled to to that protection? Yeah, I mean, I would argue very strongly that we should not take the approach adopted by Lebanon and Dayton. I mean, as you said, it locks for decades, multiple decades in the case of Lebanon, a set of identities which will obviously slowly change only, um, but they have changed. Even in Lebanon, they have changed, but that's not reflected in the political system. In some ways, cannot be reflected in the political system. As in Bosnia-Herzegovina, it's almost impossible for a party of others uh, to emerge, to take part in fair elections and to represent the people. I mean, it's, it's literally impossible in the upper house uh, where you can't uh, represent something other than one of the constituent uh, national groups. Um, how do we have this conversation in the 1980s? I suspect the only discussion we would have had about minority rights in the United Ireland would be how to protect those people who identify as British or as Ulster Unionists. And we were just looking to, to in some ways, define that group of people. Um, but we know from opinion polls, from election results, 
that a very significant block of people who grew up in unionist households these days vote for the Alliance Party, Green Party. There's even a tiny, tiny minority who vote for Sinn Féin and the SDLP. And you would expect in Ireland that would evolve over time. But if we lock in a concept of rights that only sees two groups in Northern Ireland, we almost force people at an individual level in terms of their protection of minority rights to tick which box they belong to. And the courts there have to rule on that. Uh, we don't allow the emergent block of others. In some ways, we absolve the courts from any uh, responsibility to look at their rights, which could in some cases be similar to nationalist or unions, but in some cases might be quite distinct. They might even be contradictory to the rights being asserted by nationalist or unionist blocs. Um, and we also know from the debate uh, in Ireland more generally, the issue of minority rights is increasingly a much broader agenda. Uh, I mean, the issue of violence against women and women's rights in general has been a very serious debate over the last couple of while after a few, you know, tragic murders. That's something we haven't resolved. Minority rights for, for immigrant communities, for, for asylum seekers, uh, LGBT representatives. So for me, the concept of minority rights needs to be strong. It needs to be stronger than it is at Ireland at the moment, but not define in advance every single person who grew up in a unionist household, that that is their number one identity and their most important identity. For some people, it will, and those rights do need to be guaranteed. But in a, in a way that also allows it to evolve over time and for other rights to be equally strongly protected by the courts if need be. Uh, time wants to come in in a, in a second. But I, I just make the point, I suppose, as well, that this is a very relevant consideration if you were to talk, for example, about some sort of guaranteed number of unionist seats in a, in a future government or, 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 or other protections of a political bloc as opposed to individual citizens' rights. But that's a, a debate for another day. Uh, Taima, you wanted to, to, to come in on this? Uh, yes, uh, thank you. I just wanted to just compare uh, this um, representation of uh, constituent uh, people and uh, how discriminatory it is. Uh, and uh, maybe to tell you that there are 14 uh, ruling of uh, a European uh, Court of Human Rights against the state of uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina, uh, some of uh, which uh, I uh, talked uh, about in the article. The most famous one were uh, Savic Finci, Zornic uh, Pilar. These are the people who are uh, from the um, uh, belonging to category of others. Uh, Dayton Peace Agreement has taken their right to be candidated for, say, presidency uh, of, uh, of Bosnia Herzegovina, which is a, a three members presidency. One member must be a Serb from Republika Srpska, and uh, two uh, members must be Bosniak and Croat from uh, the Federation. So if you are uh, Roma or Jewish or a citizen, uh, you can never uh, be a candidate or elected to this position. Absolutely. Well, no, it is a fascinating question because later today I shall be in Belfast and I hope to meet my little grandson, who is the son of a someone born in the South as a Catholic, my, my son, of a mother born in Belfast um, as a Protestant, but supporting the Alliance Party. So, you know, if there were such a category, where how would my my grandson be defined? It's a it's a fascinating question. Um, John, overall, I mean, you've you've identified two sort of major issues. I mean, I suppose the fundamental question is, um, you know, and and I think the answer is obvious enough from what Taima has been saying um, that you know Dayton did not create um, a sustainable state or 
at the very minimum, it didn't create a successful and properly functioning state. Uh, the sustainability, I suppose, we have to see, though I know that there are suggestions which might even be encouraged by, by Russian influence of a success, succession by Republic Srpska. But I mean, do you think, I mean, do you think there are any other sort of lessons in the sense of things we need to avoid um, from from the experience of Bosnia and Herzegovina? Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways, despite the difficulty, the Irish government, uh, when faced with a referendum on a United Ireland, which would be called by the UK government, and maybe not at a time of the Irish government's choosing, it could be called for domestic, certainly the current government could call it for domestic uh, political reasons. Um, so in some ways we need, the Irish government has a particular responsibility, or perhaps more importantly, the, the Oireachtas has, because negotiations will almost inevitably go on longer than one government, to define at least what we would put on the table, even if negotiations with unionists realistically won't happen until after a referendum. They've no incentive or desire to take part in those discussions. So how would we plan and perceive guarantees, political guarantees for people who are unionists who will have just, uh, by definition, have just lost a referendum, probably relatively closely? It'll be inevitably traumatic. And you mentioned the concept of you know unionist guaranteed seats in parliament or cabinet. That um, people talk about the Shannon perhaps going back to its original function. I think it's how we define that. For me, is the only enduring legacy from, from dating. Because if, for example, we put a clause into the constitution that three members of the cabinet must be people who self-define as Ulster unionists, you could imagine in three generations' time in a successfully integrated Ireland. You know, the people who so identify might be very small indeed. Uh, they might not be, but it's mm. at least conceivable, in which case those three representatives would come from an ever-diminishing uh, community and not really represent the community that they would represent today. Um, whereas if it was defined geographically, we could say that 50% of the Shannon must be elected from the region that currently makes up Northern Ireland. And then it's up to the people of that region if they want to vote 99% Alliance Party members to the Shannons uh, who identify as other, then that's their absolute right to do so. And no census taking in the year 2021 will tell them, oh no, hang on a minute, you've got to nominate 40% nationalists and 40% unionists and only 20% Alliance Party supporters. So we need to both protect the identities of people who will be in some ways traumatized by the creation of United Ireland potentially, but do so in a way that's welcoming, protective, but allows things to evolve over time. And for me, that's got to be regionally focused rather than putting labels on people, which we know from the experience of Bosnia-Herzegovina, don't get changed over time. They get locked into a political system. They represent power, and people don't want to change that power relationship later on. Just time, do you have any final thoughts or, or words in, in reaction to what John has said or to any of the other points which have arisen in our discussion? I I, uh, I must say I I uh, agree with uh, with uh, what uh, John was saying and uh, how important it is to carefully think about the way these uh, constituent uh, groups or uh, communities are uh, defined and also obviously there needs to be uh, in Ireland a, a, a very um, honest and um, open discussion about institutional uh, structure of a united island also a very important point of uh, uh, defining uh, veto power of veto and what what does uh, like in bosnia herzegovina for example uh, courts court or or a dayton peace agreement or even constitutional court did not define what does protection of a vital national interest mean 
which is uh, uh, regularly vetoed and uh, uh, basically takes uh, puts a stop to a proper decision making and uh, stymies uh, decision making. Some some uh, changes in law take years because of this. So these are the these are the issues that obviously I agree with John have to be uh, taught thoroughly. And and of course this question this question of the protection of legitimate national or community interests has risen very much in Northern Ireland as well. Dr. Ty McAppich and Professor John Doyle, this has been, for me, a really illuminating uh, discussion. Uh, Thank you both both so much uh, for taking part. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you, Rory. Aaron's joint project of the Royal Irish Academy, the premier all-island scholarly institution, and the Keogh Norton Institute for Irish Studies at the University of Notre Dame's Keogh School of Global Affairs. Its mission is to publish authoritative, independent and non-partisan analysis and research on constitutional, institutional and policy options for Ireland, North and South in a post-Brexit context. Now, if you've enjoyed this podcast, you can find more and read the research in full on this and on all the other articles at aaronsproject.com. And my thanks to everybody for listening to this podcast. Thank you. Thank you.